Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to uh, Ron Snyder uh, regarding his new book, The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise, which is out on McFarlane Books uh, in 2020. Uh, Ron, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good. Well, listen, before we get started uh, discussing this really interesting book, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, thanks again for having me. Um, I've been in the media industry for um, about 20 years now. I've worked in uh, newspapers, television, digital publications, and, and media relations. I've also been a, uh, an adjunct professor at Towson University teaching a variety of mass communication courses um, again, throughout the course of my career, um, I've been blessed to be able to cover a little bit of everything from politics and community news um, to, to sports, which has kind of led me to this passion of being able to write books like I've currently been doing the last several years. Okay, good, good. How did you come to write this particular book? Well, this is a book that I've wanted to write for about 10 years now. Um, you know, it's a unique story, uh, one that, you know, is regional in nature, but it also has a, you know, really a, a multinational reach if you consider. In fact, again, this is about a Canadian football league uh, team making its uh, presence known in the United States. Um, you know, I grew up a football fan here in Baltimore, and I was, uh, I was five years old when the Colts left town, and I was about 18 when um, the Ravens arrived. So, you know, I kind of had a childhood without football. Uh, professional football as a team and uh, you know, this team came in and really kind of captured uh, our our hearts um, for the, the brief time they were there uh, it was very unique in the fact that they you know won played in the championship game both years you know the great cup and uh, you won it all in their last year and it just as quickly as they were here they were gone um yeah you know the you know, the ravens come to town the nfl kind of said we're coming back to baltimore and they're just you know, the CFL uh, experiment in the U.S. just wasn't working overall, and if it wasn't going to work in Baltimore, it wasn't working anywhere. And, and so it, they ended up moving to Montreal. And, you know, I always felt like, man, uh, it had such a great story, you know, highs, lows, um, the thrill of victory, agony of defeat, you know, everything that you won in a, in a great sports story. And I always just wanted a, an outlet to be able to tell it. Okay, okay. Uh, let's let's turn to the book itself. Uh, and again, I, I found this book absolutely fascinating because because of the fact that this is, a, a, I believe I'm correct when I say that this is the only U.S.-based team ever to win a, a, a Grey Cup championship, correct? That is correct. Yes. Yeah, so okay. that makes it very so, unique in that regard. Okay. So... In your, in your introduction, and, and, I, and I think one of the really good things about the book, in addition to telling the story of the Stallions, is that you really do spend a, a quite a bit of time covering the history of professional football in Baltimore. So let me start with that. 
In your introduction, you mentioned that the Stallions arrived in Baltimore at, at an opportune time. What do you mean by opportune time, and why was Baltimore ready to accept a CFL franchise in 1994? Well, really, it's again, it kind of came at a time where I don't think it would have worked before or after. Um, you got to think at that point in time, um, again, Baltimore was without an NFL team. Um, they had uh, attempted several times to lure uh, an existing team here. Um, it was talked about the, the Cardinals coming and the Bucks, uh, you know, and even some minor discussions about the Raiders, among others. Uh, the city also had just lost out to um, expansion. They had some great uh, ownership teams in place, but the NFL first went to Charlotte, which I think everyone understood it was a new market. But then they went to Jacksonville, and that kind of really made people scratch their head why, you know, why Jacksonville it just didn't seem to, to fit. And I think at that point in time, it had been a decade since you know, there had been no football. And you know, I think the fans in Baltimore were just tired of you know, being um, you know, the punching bag of the NFL. They were ready for something different. They were ready to move on. Um, and uh, you know, again, you enter Jim Spiros, the, the owner, the businessman who, who brought the team into town. And, you know, I think they were just ready to you know, say, you know what, um, you, we don't need you, NFL. We're going um, to embrace this team and we're going to celebrate football like, like Baltimore knows how to. Again, it's a, a city that, with a deep history. Um, you know, to many, you know, the NFL was put on the map you know, thanks to Baltimore in the 1958 championship game between the Colts and the uh, Giants, which was called right. the, the greatest game ever played. Right, right. And and in chapter one, you actually go into that particular history. You discuss the history of the Colts starting in 1947. Now, initially, the Colts struggle when they were part of the old uh, All-American Football Conference in the, and also in their first year in the NFL. Why was the city supportive of this version, this version of the franchise, even though they were not very successful on the field? I think, you know, it was one of those things where the city wasn't quite ready to embrace football, uh, professional football, you know, again, I think of that time, um, baseball, boxing, horse racing, uh, were really the Kings of sports at that point in time. Um, and football, college football was huge in many parts of the country. It's like it still is today. Um, but you know, the NFL was, was still you know, a regional, um, secondary sport in many ways. Again, it, it really took, um, you know, several years before it was ready to grow. So, you know, I think it was just a you know, a couple of years too early, but but one that, you know that um, you know the city was ready to embrace them shortly thereafter. Okay, okay. Um, how does uh, Carol Rosenblum get involved with the Colts and and bring the Colts back to Baltimore? Tell us a little bit about that that part of the story. Well, you know, the the Colts sort of came up from the ashes of the you know former Dallas Texans, um, and Burt Bell, who's the commissioner, uh, was also a coach. In college, I was one of uh, uh, Carol Rosenblum's coach when he played uh, football at University of Pennsylvania. And you know, Carol had uh, gone on to make you know considerable money in in garment industry and was well known in Baltimore. And the league was looking to expand or re- relocate to Baltimore. And I think that connection kind of led to you know um, Rosenblum kind of. Being encouraged to, to, to join the join the league, and it, it kind of took off from there. Okay, okay. Um, 
we're not going to have to talk about something that's very unpleasant, obviously for for people from Baltimore and and any of the uh, any of these Baltimore Colt fans. Um, in chapter two, you describe uh, the Colts leaving Indianapolis, uh, leaving for Indianapolis in 1984. Tell us a little bit about what that was like for the fans of the city. Now, again, you were you were fairly young at the time, but you know what was it like? Uh, as you were growing up, what were the some of the the stories that you heard from some other f- folks in your family, some of your friends who maybe had been longtime Colts fans and saw this team just literally drive away in the middle of the night in moving bands in 1984? Well, really, my my only memory of the Colts as a child, anyway, um, was those those moving bands leaving. And I, I think, you know, we were all optimistic, though, that the NFL is not going to let this happen. Um, you know, they're, they may take them, but we're going to get a team right away or they're going to reverse it and make them sell the team and we'll get the Colts back. They're not going to let the city that was home to Johnny Unitas and Raymond Barry and Lenny Moore and, and Burt Jones and so many great players who you know, just not have a franchise. And at that point, I mean, the, the Colts were a shell of the former selves, you know, um, Robert Ursay had ran the franchise into the ground. Um, you know, he never wanted, from the time he traded franchises uh, with uh, Carol Rosenblum in the 70s, you know, it was pretty obvious, you know, in hindsight that he had no intentions of keeping the team in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did everything he could to, you know, um, to, to make that happen. Um, you know, at that point, um, you know, I think the city was just kind of, you know, felt like it got hit with a Mack truck as far yeah. as sports goes, and they weren't, I don't know if we were really quantified exactly what it meant, but it led to a dark period of, of sports in Baltimore. I mean, you know, the Orioles were coming off of a World Series win in 83, but it, it was a franchise that would be quickly going down um, a, a dark path in and of itself as far as, you know, wins and losses on the field. So, you know, it really went from Baltimore, went from, you know, the highs of the, the late 60s, early 70s to being a World Series and Super Bowl champion. Uh, city to uh, being a, a team with one sport and was wondering if, you know, even then at that point, there was concern that the, the Orioles might leave town at the mm. same time. Let me let me ask you a, a, another aspect about another aspect of this. And, you know, when, when the Cleveland Browns left to become the Baltimore Ravens, ironically enough, right. The city, the city managed to, or, or the, the the city managed to keep the name and the records of the Browns in Cleveland. Was there any talk about doing something along those lines when the Colts left for Indianapolis? In other, in other words, you were going to keep the the Colts name. And, and or at least the records, the franchise records in Baltimore, as opposed to having those be now Indianapolis Colts records? Um, there was hope that that was the case, um, you know, in Baltimore. But again, it just it never panned out. Um, the only thing that <clears throat> the city was really able to keep in the end was was the, uh, the the marching band and the uniforms. And that was simply because the marching band happened to have taken the uniforms to the um cleaners and and kind of just hit them until you know uh the franchise that's fine you can keep them don't worry about it okay okay now uh, be 
obviously the folks in Baltimore wanted to bring, wanted to, to, to hope, hope to get an, an, another NFL team. But before that, you also had, before the Stallions come in to, into the picture, the city actually has another franchise and actually another very good franchise. And that happened to be the, uh, the Philadelphia slash Baltimore stars of the USFL. Um, what was the impact of that particular team on the city's fan base? I mean, did they embrace the stars? What were some of the problems or what some of the issues in regards to the, uh, the stars in the USFL? Yeah, in many ways, the Baltimore stars were or Baltimore in name only, um, you know, Philadelphia was really Philadelphia stars franchise was, was really the premier franchise in the USFL. Um, you know, had, had played in the championships, you know, all three years of league existence, winning it two of the last three years. Um, but, you know, there was an owner, um, that, you know, that really pushed the, the uh, league to move to the, try to move to the fall. And, and, you know, I heard that that owner got into politics. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I then that person's name escapes me now for, for some uh, reason. You know, but this is a, this isn't a political show. So we'll, 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 we'll let people figure that out for themselves that's uh, correct um you know but you know when that happened uh, you know the, the the philly was uh, the philly franchise was really left without a, a home um and there was a, a desire to move uh, to baltimore uh, but at that point in time you know the orioles uh, were the lone occupants of a memorial stadium which had shared the front stadium with the colts for many years but you know a, a franchise couldn't um play there until two, until 1986 um, when they moved when they were technically moved to the fall um, obviously the league never made it that far um, mm-hmm. but in the meantime they decided to play at uh, College Park and the University of Maryland's stadium um, so, but they still practiced in Philly so they practiced in Philly they played in College Park which is for those who don't know is right outside of DC um, it might be 30 minutes away, but it, in many regards, it could be might as well be two hours away from Baltimore. Um, very different markets, and a lot of people didn't want to make that drive, you know, down there. So they were called the Baltimore Stars, um, but really they played in Philly. They, I mean, they played in College Park and they practiced in Philly. Um, and, and you know, again, the, the local media did cover them. You know, there was obviously beat writers at the, at the Baltimore Sun. Uh, you know, it was picked up on, on local broadcasts on local radio stations as well. But again, I, you know, they were only there for the one year. So it really wasn't really much to embrace at that point. Okay. Okay. Um, now, okay. So, so the, 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 the stars go away. The, obviously the entire USFL goes away. Tell us a little bit, and you, you describe this, I, I think, very nicely in, in Chapter 4. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the city of Baltimore then goes into this period where they are trying to woo the NFL to come back to Baltimore. Um, how, you know, tell us a little bit about that, and tell us a little bit maybe about the frustrations that come about because of that uh, being spurned by the uh, by the NFL repeatedly. Well, I mean, it, it, it kind of starts with the with the governor at the time, uh, William Donald Schaefer. William Donald Schaefer uh, was the the mayor of Baltimore when the Colts left, and he uh, you know took it very personally that, that the Colts left town. 
on his watch, and he really wanted to um, work to bring that franchise back to Baltimore. Um, so, you know, there, there was funding in place through the Lottery Association, the lottery, um, where a portion of the lottery funds here in Maryland were, you know, uh, utilized for, for a stadium package. Um, you know, there was a push to try to, you know, bring several franchises in. Most notably was the Cardinals, but the Bidwells liked the weather more in Arizona. Um, and then after that, the league announced that it was going to expand. So the, the city and the state pushed really hard to find quality, you know, owners and they had several in place. Um, Boogie Wineglass, uh, the Lerner family, among others, um, you know, to uh, try to bring a franchise in. And again, um, the first one went to Charlotte. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of understood that because it was a new market. Uh, Charlotte was growing. You know, the, the Hornets had been pretty successful up to that point in the NBA. Right, right. They, I think they wanted to. But, you know, they figured, okay, well, the next one's going to go to uh, maybe St. Louis, who had lost the Cardinals. Um, maybe, um, you know, maybe Memphis. Uh, you know, that it had success in the USFL as well, but, um, or in Baltimore. And then when it went to Jacksonville, people were just like, you know, dumbfounded. They couldn't understand why. And, <clears throat> you know, Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner of the NFL, famously told us, you know, maybe we should take that money and build a museum. And that kind of made people even matter. And, and mm-hmm. we're just kind of wondering, are we ever going to be in an NFL city again? And, and of course, the uh, I think the, the NFL really... As, as, a, as a Floridian, uh, native Floridian, uh, 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 I mean, the, the Jacksonville Jaguars are, are just an absolute joke. Uh, you know, it, it really has been not exactly the most uh, successful franchise. I mean, they're even talking possibly about moving them to London. Right. Right. Before all this, obviously, before the pandemic and everything, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and I think that the thought was initially was to um, – kind of tap into the Orlando market, you know, the, the magic and looking at the NBA, the magic had done well. Um, you know, at that point, you know, they had, uh, Shaq coming in uh, for the magic and, and they were really popular. And the thought was, was, um, you know, the Jacksonville's not too, too far from far, you know, from Orlando, maybe tap into the market, but it never really panned out that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, all right. So we, we've been talking a lot about the, the history of Baltimore and professional football, the city being spurned by the Colts, and then the, the issue with the Stars, and now the frustration with the, uh, with the NFL not coming back to the city. In chapters five through nine, you examine the birth of the Stallions, uh, or it, actually they were called the initially called the CFL Colts, and then there was an issue with that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that history and how the people of Baltimore reacted to the CFL Colts or the CFLers or eventually the Stallion? So, again, you know, the, the idea was, was to really kind of capitalize on the anger um, that the NFL had created in Baltimore. And it came at the same time that the CFL was expanding into the U.S., uh, the CFL was looking to add franchises in part to try to take advantage of the U.S. market while also trying to get an influx of cash from expansion fees. Uh, Jim Spears uh, was a former college football player and a businessman um, who thought that this was a, um, you know, a, a good opportunity. Uh, when he came into town, uh, you know, again, he 
he was a, a great salesman, uh, connected with Tom Maddy, a former Colt, several businessmen in the area to kind of tap into some of that local flavor and open some doors in that regard. Um, and, you know, his thought was, was that, look, if we're going to name this team, there's only one thing you can name it. It's the Baltimore CFL Colts. Um, and that kind of energized the, the, the fan base even more, and people started buying season tickets. Um, but then the league and the Colts, well, you know, the Indianapolis Colts, um, you know, had sued over the copyright infringement, uh, and you know they fought it uh, the best they could, uh, getting a lot of pro bono legal help. At the end of the day, the um, CFO Colts, um, you know, there was a um, you know an injunction uh, right before uh, the start of the, the season, so you know they had to literally um, black everything out that included the word Colts. Um, so they played the first season without a name. You know, they were just the Baltimore uh, CFL, CFLers of the Baltimore CFL football team. Um, mm-hmm. Some fans of uh, a certain Washington team can kind of relate to what it's like. To I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> you kind of want to put it in context uh, in today's world. Um, you know, you saw what happened with, with, with the team in Washington without a name. Um, right. But, you know, just because you know they didn't couldn't call themselves the Colts didn't mean that the fans in the stands couldn't uh, you know utilize that nickname. Um, you know they would call each other. You know the, the the announcer would say you're Baltimore CFL and it'd be Colts chance and there's C O L T S in the stands and they really tried to bring back that feeling from the '60s and '70s. Um, let me let me let me ask you this. Uh, now you said that w- was there actual merchandise produced. That, that actually had the logo or the name on it that said CFL Colts. Oh, there, there were there were hats and mugs and shirts and programs and the, you know the the uh, football field with, had Colts on it. Um, you know I I have some you know I have a hat and some programs and some other stuff that says you know Baltimore CFL Colts um, at home. Uh, I, I would I would assume that that stuff is uh, highly highly valued in the uh, Baltimore area even to this day. Um, yeah, to a to a, a, a group following, um, you know, I, I don't know how much it's worth, you know, but from from a, a pers- uh, financial perspective, but it, it definitely has a special place in the hearts of, of those fans that, that appreciate what's going on here in in Baltimore. Um, but they literally had to take uh, sharpies and go through all the programs and all the hats and all of everything that said Colton Lurie paint over the field right before the first game. So that was kind of uh, unique in and of itself. And again, because of the uniqueness of all of this, it became the lead story, not just, um, <clears throat> you know, locally, but you know, nationally, it was the lead story in ESPN, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, you know, CNN, you know, all of the, the national outlets was covering this, this team in, in this battle. Now, how did the folks in Baltimore react? I mean, it was professional football. Right. That's true. But it's a different type of professional football. How did the folks in Baltimore react to seeing a Canadian football league product on the field with the difference in the size of the field, the the rouge, the, the all that wacky motion that takes place before the start of a – before the ball is snapped, in addition to the fact that you only get two downs to get your 10 yards, how did the folks react to to the, those differences? Well, you know, it was a little different back then. Was, this was really before the Internet, so there wasn't a whole lot of being able to kind of just go on Google and, and track all this stuff down. So they really had to learn on the fly, and there was educational campaigns for the team and the league. Um, 
you know, I think really the only thing that I knew about the CFL was that, um, you know, Doug Flutie had played there or was still there at that point in time. Warren Moon had played there. We, we kind of knew Rocket Ishmael had been with the Argonauts a couple of years prior. And right. so we knew about Pinball Clements, who was you know, they're still one of the, the, the all-time greats that was there at the time. Um, but I think for us, um, you know, um, you know, for us in Baltimore, it was football. And, you know, we're going to figure out the rules, but, you know, these were blue-collar players who weren't making a lot of money. Um, they were, you know, uh, and, and it was so we could kind of relate. It was it was kind of like a, um, going back to the past because, you know, these like much like Johnny Unitas and Art Donovan and Raymond Barry, you know, they lived in right. neighborhoods as we did. Um, so did these guys. These guys lived in the same apartment buildings. Their kids went to the same schools. Um, you know, they shopped at the same grocery stores. So, you know, it was, it was very much a, you know, a connection in that regard. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, that, that really has been such a special part of the history of the Colts, the sort of the blue collar aspect of the, of the various players and the blue collar aspect of the team as a whole in relation to the city. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that was, a, that was, I mean, I think that's something that we, um, we, even to this day, you know, um, people in Baltimore, you know, appreciate is that again, we've always had this, you know, uh, justly or unjustly, this, this uh, inferiority complex. So we're just a stop between Washington and Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're, um, not a major, you know, people don't think of us as a major city and, you know, we, uh, kind of use that as a rallying point and, and, and our blue collar players is something that, that we use to attach that um, argument moving forward. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's get to the action on the field and let's talk a little bit about that. In chapters 10 through 12, you examine the stallions, CFLers slash stallions seasons in Baltimore. Um, tell us a little bit about those two seasons and, Again, the fan reaction were people actually because I mean the the story of the CFL U.S. based franchises, uh, you know, is is pretty well known. It was basically an unmitigated disaster. Um, what? Tell us a little bit about the seasons, and tell us a little bit about whether Baltimore was different in in, in regards to the success as far as attracting fans in, in to the stands, unlike you know, some of the other franchises that, that existed, well, the Las Vegas Posse or some of those teams. Right, and, and you're right. In many cases, you know, the, the franchises were an unmitigated disaster. Las Vegas was probably the biggest example of that. Um, but in Baltimore, um, you know, again, I think a combination of you know, desire for football, anger at the NFL, and, and then also this was also, especially the first season, 94, I remember there was a baseball strike. So, you know, there was no Orioles. So really, you know, if you wanted professional sports um, in, um, in in Baltimore, that was it. So they got a lot more attention than they would have had otherwise, just given all of those factors in play. Um, and, and and they didn't go through um, the, the, the path of, of hiring, um, you know, former NFL coaches or former, you know, name players that, that many of the other franchises did. They went after CFL um, coaches, they went after CFL player personnel um, people uh, and, and really put a roster together of people that had success in the CFL and it led to success on the field. 
Um, you know, also another thing that people may not know is, is that the CFL requires so many of their players to be born uh, in Canada, mm-hmm. citizens of Canada, um, and you know, U.S. rules. That is the rules that apply to the U.S. teams because of, of, of labor laws here in the U.S. So right. it was there was they, they had a little bit of a competitive advantage in that regard because they could go and get whoever they wanted. Uh, okay. And in the first year, I mean, they they jumped out and had a really good season. They went twelve and six. Um, and was second in their division, and and, and um, they made it all the way to the um, the Grey Cup, and, and lost to um, uh, the BC Lions on a last second field goal in what was many considered one of the great Grey Cups of all times. And then after that, um, they uh, um, went on to win the Grey Cup the next year. So okay. Um, tell tell us a, tell us a little bit more about that second season. Uh, I, I believe the team didn't start off particularly well. How did how did that season play out? And I, and I think really also one of the things that I that I think our the our listeners would want to know is how many people are coming to these games. Well, again, you know the the, the first season the team averaged in over thirty thousand fans a game. Both seasons they averaged more than thirty thousand fans. Led the league in attendance the first year. I was second in the league in attendance second year. Just by comparison, you think about the XFL, um, which you know was starting to pick up a little bit of steam this year before the pandemic. They were happy with you know fifteen twenty thousand fans. So you can imagine getting thirty five forty thousand fans uh, to a CFL game in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and and because I think the success on the field, you know, the, you know that helped as well. You know, it, it, you know, it, it, you know, the, the uh, novelty of just being a you know new team and, and being able to stick it to the NFL would have wore off pretty quickly if the team hadn't been any good. So the fact yeah. that they played for a title and brought back everyone the next year, um, you know, added to the, the to the legacy and the legend of this team. Um, you know, in the second season, the mantra was really unfinished business, um, and the goal was was to go all the way. Um, they did, uh, you know, they had a um, a little bit of up and down uh, season early on that second season, in part because, again, remember they play with a, like a thirty six man roster and not a fifty three man roster like the NFL does, um, and because of the way the scheduling worked. Uh, because of you know the, where this, the, the franchises were in places like not just you know Edmonton and Calgary and Toronto, but um, you know San Antonio, uh, Baltimore, Birmingham, uh, Memphis, Shreveport, uh, you know among others, uh, led to some weird travel arrangements. And at one point, the uh, Ra- uh, the Ravens, the Stallions, again at that point they had renamed themselves the Stallions in that second season. Um, because of you know having having lost the lawsuit, they figured they had to find a name, so they kept you know the the, the horse thing went with the stallions. Um, you know, they at one point had to play something like four games in like thirteen days, which is unheard of you know for football. Right. And you know yeah. the, the Ravens or the Cowboys or what have you having that many games with twenty fewer players on its roster. So they were wore out. They you know they had lost a couple games during that stretch. But once they got through that, um, you know, they they didn't lose again and took it all the way to the Grey Cup. Who did who did they play in that particular Grey Cup, and what what was the final score? Uh, that year they played. Um, <clears throat> sorry, they played the Calgary Stampeders. Uh, that was um, the. Uh, <laughs> pardon me. Sorry, that was uh, led by. Um, 
uh, Doug, Doug Flutie? Flutie. Yes, I'm sorry, <laughs> Doug Flutie, yeah. and, and the other quarterback for that team was was uh, Jeff, uh, not Jeff Blake, um, Jeff Garcia. Uh, oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's two you know, very high quality NFL uh, quarterbacks, um, and you know, that year it was it was a pretty dominating game. Uh, you know, the Stallions, you know, in Saskatchewan in one of the coldest games you, know, you can imagine uh, won 37 to 20 so it was a, it was a dominating game they, they became the only american franchise to ever win the uh the great cup excellent excellent uh what was the what was the reaction of the city when the team came back from uh from uh saskatchewan uh, with the great well, cup you know we have to back up a little bit because um two weeks prior um you know they're getting ready to play in the uh the conference championship um, the, the number one seed, uh, the Rocket and Rolling, uh, you know, November, uh, you know, early November, the, the uh, Art Modell announces that the Colts, or I mean the Colts, the Browns are leaving Cleveland and they're coming to Baltimore. So mm-hmm. with that came um, obviously lots of news and, um, they, you know, they, they came lots of news and, um you know, the, the, a lot of the media just kind of had to cover that story. So a lot of the resources went away. The you know the interest went. The fans cut back because again, it was kind of like I, I used the analogy of you know a, a jilted um, boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, they're they're uh, they get cheated on, get cheated on, get treated really poorly, um, and so they go and find this nice you know uh, young lady or young man you know, to. Uh, uh, be in a relationship with, and then the one that cheats on him calls back and says, "I'm sorry, I've changed. Will you take me back?" And then they decide to go back to him <laughs> and leave the other, you know, who did the other, you know, the other uh, new one, the, the new spouse or, or, or um, companion did nothing wrong, um, but, but you know, they just decided to to give it another shot, and that's what happened. Do, but the stallions really were left the shelter. Do you think that do you think that the Stallions' success on the field and and the fact that they were the most successful of these American-based franchises uh, in the CFL did that help to attract the attention of Art Modell and, and the NFL or or was this you know were there other things going on in the background? Um, you know, I think you know it, you know there are there are those who believe that. Um, there were those who believe that 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 was an overriding factor. Um, But in the end of the day, um, it was a factor, but it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say it was, um, you know, it wasn't the main factor. There was a great stadium deal in place. Um, You know, Cleveland was looking to to move and, and there wasn't a whole lot of options at that point in time. Um, you know, again, the fact that they were able to put 40,000 fans in the CFL game there helped. I think it, you know, it may have been the icing on the cake, but it wasn't the, uh, the ultimate factor, but I think it's okay factor. Okay. All right. So now the, 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 the Ravens have announced, or the, the Browns have announced that they're going to move to Baltimore. Tell us. I guess about the death throes of the of the Stallions, a team that has just won the Grey Cup, that has been very, the most successful U.S. based uh, CFL franchise, and now all of a sudden, they've got a major problem. Yeah. How do they how do they deal with well, that? I mean, at this point, you know, the the U.S. expansion of the CFL was, was teetering on um, disaster. Uh, you know, Baltimore's really the 
the the linchpin that kept everything together. And look, Baltimore is a is a major sports town, but it's not New York. It's not Los Angeles. Um, it's not Miami. Uh, there's only so many ad dollars and marketing dollars um, that, that go around, and there was just no way the city would, would be able to support um, two professional football teams um, here in town. And so, I mean, they tried to make it work. Um, they tried to you know, looking at other options as far as maybe moving to Virginia or Houston or any one of a number of things. But you know, the, a lot of the uh, you know the CFL, most of the majority of the CFL franchises. Um, were folding up at that point, and you know there just wasn't really anywhere left to go. But it was a solid franchise, so you know they did work out a deal where you know the the, the stallions were folded, but then moved up to Montreal and became the Alouettes. So you know in many ways you know this was a franchise that brought football back to Baltimore and then brought football back to Montreal. So I guess I guess in that regard, it, it is truly a unique franchise in that it brought back, helped to bring back professional football to two cities that had basically been spurred by, spurned by their uh, by their respective leagues. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, um, Montreal went on to for, for several years um, be one of the, the um, model franchises in the CFL. Now they had to divide up some of those um, their roster because you know they couldn't. Um, they couldn't all go to to, to Montreal because of the of the Canadian role, a Canadian player role. But you know, a solid, good uh, foundation, including Jim Pop, the general manager, uh, went to um, Montreal. Several people uh, went to ended up in Toronto and some of the other franchises. But you know, they were going to to you know, win several Grey Cups and um, uh, play in several others. You know, based in part because of the. Uh, foundation that was laid by the stallions uh, uh core that, that moved up there um i guess really the, the the one last thing that i wanted to ask you about this is uh, does the arrival of the ravens um and, and i mean it's a successful franchise everyone everyone is happy that the, that the ravens have done as well as they have but how do the Ravens connect with the Colts as far as the the passion and the love and the history of the fans of uh, of the city of Baltimore? Um, well, I mean, I think you know, they understood. They came in and they saw how the Stallions embraced the, the Baltimore's past, and they've always done a great job of connecting Baltimore's past with its present and its future. You know, they they had always welcomed. Uh, the old Colts to the stadium. Um, you know, Johnny Unitas was there the first time. The Colts on the on the sidelines uh, first time. Uh, the Colts came to town, and you know, Jim Harbaugh was the quarterback for the uh, Ravens. Um, handed the ball off to Johnny Unitas. You know, all the Colts were on the sidelines for that first game in Baltimore '96. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, Lenny Moore, you know, has always been welcome to practice. So they've always embraced. Um, They've always em- embraced footballs, the, the Baltimore football past. What's the what's the uh, the set the understanding of the folks in Baltimore of the of the irony that they lost a team and they you know a great city with a great football tradition lost a team to Indianapolis, but then Baltimore was the beneficiary 
of a very similar situation that tore the heart out of the the people of Cleveland. Is there is there any any understanding of that irony in in the city of Baltimore? Initially, there was. I mean, I think there were there still is you know a group of older fans today that you know um, a, a very small minority um, of fans that, that refused to embrace the Ravens because you know, they. Um, were arrived here the same way that the Colts arrived in Indianapolis and, and felt it was hypocritical. Um, but if you look at the difference, um, when the when when the um, Browns left, they left their history, they left their colors. Uh, they were guaranteed a franchise within you know three years, so they knew that this was temporary. Um, Baltimore yeah. went a decade and not knowing whether there was um, going to be a um, you know another football team in town. So it it, it, it was. Many it was different in many regards, but at the same time, you know, I think the fans wanted to do everything they could to, to get an expansion team, and really the NFL didn't leave many options. If we were going to get football back in Baltimore, it was going to be another. It was going to be an existing franchise. Okay, okay, um, Ron. Uh, I, I think you know we've covered we've covered all the questions. I wanted to ask: Is there any aspect of the Stallions' history that we have not discussed that you feel needs to be? Touched on. Well, I think again, I think it's important if you look at it. The legacy of the team goes far beyond the two years uh, here in Baltimore. Um, again, you, know, you look at, at that roster. You know, the greatest uh, running back in CFL history, Mike Pringle, got his, his true start in Baltimore. The greatest GM, uh, arguably in CFL history, Jim Pop, uh, started here in Baltimore. Um, you know, uh, Tracy Ham, the quarterback of the team, was a CFL Hall of Famer. Uh, Alfred Payton, whose son plays in the NF, NBA, uh, you know, Hall of Fame defensive player. Uh, you know, that team led uh, several people uh, to NFL careers. Um, O.J. Brigantz, who has battled ALS here so valiantly for more than a decade, um, ended up playing for the Ravens here in Baltimore, won a Super Bowl, was the only per player in NFL history and in football history to win a great cup and a Super Bowl ring in the same city. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Josh Miller, the punter. Uh, went on to win a Super Bowl ring with with, with the Patriots. Uh, several other players got you know ended up on NFL rosters. Um, you know there are executives on you know in sports franchises that get, that got their start as interns with the Stallions. Um, you know then there's also you know, we didn't even mention you know, the the band, um, you know the, the Colts marching band um, that had kept the fight for football here in Baltimore uh, going through all those years that there wasn't a team. Uh, you know, was you know the band for the Stallions, and then when the the band um, when the Colt, when the Ravens arrived, they became the Ravens marching band. So you know, the the, the Stallions were, were really a bridge. I, I use that analogy. It provided a bridge between the Colts and the Ravens, and it, and it really helped um, prepare uh, Baltimore to be an NFL city again. Well, let me. You know, I just thought of one other one other quick question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, the the band. Is, is is now called the Ravens Band. Do they ever, you know, every so often do they uh, wear or uh, come out in the the old uniform, the old cult uniforms? Is that does that maybe part of their uh, brand new, part of their repertoire? Got new uniforms now. Although the, you know they, they they did rework the fight song several years ago, the old Colts fight song to um, to to modernize it a little bit to to make it the Ravens fight song. So. I reworked the lyrics, but you know the, the the same marching, the same fight song the Colts had for years is is the fight song here in Baltimore. 
Okay. Okay. Well, Ron, uh, we've taken up a, a, a quite a bit of your time. This is a really, really great book. I, I, I just want to congratulate you on, on the work. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of fans being spurned by professional teams uh, is is such an interesting um, such an interesting story, and and the role that that new team that maybe comes in and sort of tries to fill that gap is it's just an absolutely fascinating story. So uh, I I really enjoyed reading the book, and and I want to thank you for for taking the time to visit with us today. No, thank you again. You know, again, it's a sort of available through McFarland Publishing. Um, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can get it at Barnes Noble or wherever books are sold. So. Okay. Well, thank thank you very much, and you have a good day. You do the same. Thanks so much.